With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Boys and girls, two-footed podcast on Tuesday, the 7th of June, brought to you by EPLindex.com and your presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, a virtually virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geoblocked from, while also keeping your data safe. If you go to LibertyShield.com and use the code EPL25, that's EPL25. You'll get 25% off either the hardware package, which is a router mailed out to you in the post, or the software package, which is instantly downloadable to your devices. Check out LibertyShield.com. And again, the code is EPL25, the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops on Etsy using the codes EPL10 and RED10 to satisfy all your merchandise needs. Right, folks, it is a special day because I'm not alone today. I am joined by the host of the EPL Roundtable podcast, Mr. Kevin DeVries. How are you, sir? Yeah, I'm doing great. First of all, lovely intro. Nailed it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. As, as people listening probably know, we tend to do these shows two to three times a year. This is obviously the season review one, but always love chatting with you. And these are these are obviously some of my favorite shows we do all year. Yeah, same. We, we, we try to do them three times a year. So there's the season review, the summer transfer review, and then the January transfer review. And we were how long have we been doing this now? It must be five years yeah at least four or five yeah which is honestly pretty impressive (laughs) that we've we've kept it going that long but uh, i will say of all the shows that i do this is the one that people are always like are you doing it are you doing it with dave this time because apparently we're just like always a week slower than people want to be but uh we are and i've heard from people as well like where's the review why is kevin not on where's the review here's the review it's today it's just (laughs) taken us a bit of time because well, Liverpool decided they had to go all the way to the end of the season, and then I needed a little bit of a of a rest from talking about certain things. But now today we are here to do this. So this is part one, and on this show we're going to do Arsenal through to Leicester, the first ten teams alphabetically in the league, and then on Kev's feed, the EPL Roundtable feed, you will get part two going from Liverpool all the way through 
to Wolverhampton Wanderers. So that will be out later this week, I believe, on your feed, Kev. Yep, will be. But yeah, it's it's always, always a good time. So let's get going, yeah? Yeah, so you're going to kick us off with... I... I don't know how to describe them. They're certainly your your North London rivals. Mm. Are they the team you've most enjoyed the season from? <laughs> well, we'll wait till the documentary comes out to uh, to decide that. Yeah, the the Arsenal thing is interesting because I think there's a whole generation of Spurs fans that came through in like 2014 and later in that Poch era that hate Chelsea more than Arsenal. But it seems to always come down to the two of us for those top four spots and obviously... Spurs got there, but maybe not the best way to to start off talking about Arsenal. But I actually think they had a pretty good season. I think if you had started in August and told Arsenal fans that they'd be fifth, they had a chance to get top four in the last three weeks, but fell just short. But given Arteta and what they'd seen from him before, given the how young their squad was, uh, I, I think most of them probably would have taken a fifth place finish, and that's that's obviously where they end up. And, and by most metrics, they were like exactly the fifth best team in the Premier League in uh, actual points, expected points, shots on target, expected goals, clean sheets. There's a whole bunch of things where like they're exactly fifth. Um, so I, I don't think they've been like air quotes hard done by, although obviously. Uh, the way it transpired, it was in their hands kind of late in the season there. But they have loads of developing players. Um, Arteta seems to have improved some, is my opinion, but I'm sure you have one of your own there. Uh, but it does feel like they're on an upward trajectory, despite you know the, the kind of brutal end to the season. But uh, Odegaard and Saka were fantastic. I didn't know. Saka was second in the league in touches in the box, which I'm not sure I would have guessed. Salah is like hilariously in first, but ahead of mm. everyone else in the Premier League, he was just constantly there. Odegaard, top five himself, and chances created. Um, so it seems like they're building something there. I think the the really the main issue for them was striker because Aubameyang and Lacazette they tried to rely on for one more year. They're going to end up losing both on freeze. Um, I, I'm not saying letting Aubameyang go in January was the wrong choice. He, he wasn't doing anything for them, and I don't think you can just take what he did at Barcelona and assume he would have done it for them. But the the fact that Aubameyang left and then Lacazette scored like two goals the rest of the season did have that weird run of assists <laughs> in the middle of the year. Mm. But I, I think that really kind of condemned them. Um, their signings, though, uh, Ramsdale, White, and Tomiyasu, listen— I think they had better seasons than I expected. I'll let people draw their own conclusions as to how bad I thought all of those signings were. But I thought they were all pretty decent. They didn't get relegated with uh, Ramsdale and Goal, which he had previously done with two different clubs. Um, so credit to them there. Um, but but yeah, like I said, I, I think it, it just all comes down to these goals. Uh, their top five goal scorers in the PL in the Premier League, none of them <laughs> were strikers, unless you count Martinelli, which they should, but don't, because they keep lagging him out wide. Um, so if they want to get better next year, I think that's really where they need to fix. They're, they're currently being linked with like Isak and Nunez and Osimhen, who uh, I know you've already talked about on Twitter, is kind of like being like the secondary tier of strikers on the market. But the top tier are already gone, with Haaland yeah. going to City and Mbappe deciding to stay at PSG. So... I think any of them will go there. And I think the upside that, say, a Darwin Nunez would have, who's currently linked to just United, Tottenham, and Arsenal, um, with Newcastle apparently not really pursuing that too heavily, is that they can offer the minutes. At United, you might be dealing with Ronaldo through the center. You're dealing with Sancho and Rashford if you want one of the wing spots. 
if you're going to Tottenham, you're basically a backup for the front three. Maybe Nunez could surpass Kulisevsky, but you're basically backing up Son and Kane and then potentially Kulisevsky as well. At Arsenal, you know you're going to be the guy. And I think that will be a draw to any of those numbers of folks. Uh, I'm wondering if Isak's struggles this year will actually be of like a benefit to Arsenal, who obviously were really confident they were going to sign him in January, even though I'm pretty sure that was just fan-led. I, I don't know if there was yeah, anything it was. actually... It was just fan-led. Yeah, I didn't think there was anything like meaningful to that, but I'm sure there is interest there. But anyway, they're going to have natural growth within the club. They'll make meaningful additions, which they kind of have to, and especially at striker, I think, for me. Um but I think the bad news is that the Premier League is shaping up to be really strong next season, especially at the top, because City and Liverpool just refuse to stop being incredible. Even if Liverpool lose Mane, you already bought the replacement in January. Uh, Manchester United hired an actual manager. Chelsea are just trading one billionaire for another. Tottenham have proven that they're willing to invest under one of the best managers in the world in Antonio Conte. So, like, I, I've given them a B plus for this season, and I wouldn't be shocked. If I give them a better grade next year, but I don't think that that'll be a higher finish. Uh, and I think the the really annoying thing, if you're an Arsenal fan, I was talking to, to Dan, who comes on our show all the time to talk Arsenal, is that you had the chance to like plunge a stake in the heart of Tottenham's project. If you make top four, Arsenal missing top four doesn't change anything, right? You still have a young squad. You still have buying power. You still have, you know, all these things. If Tottenham is out on top four, could have lost Kane, could have lost Conte. Liverpool were, were sniffing around Son. Eriksen and uh, Bastoni both would have been super unlikely. I think right now they're both like 60% likely. It's not like I think they're like done deals, but you're never getting those players in without Champions League. So like you had a real chance to like kill in its infancy Conte's Tottenham mm. and just missed out on doing it. But uh, for the season, like I said, if you look at the beginning of the year, the expectations coming in, I think probably a B or a B plus. There's, there's obviously multiple ways to look at this. So you can look at the, the broader pictures is like you said, you, you, if you said to an Arsenal fan back in August, especially off the back of their first three results when they were sitting bottom of the league after three games, yeah. if you said to them, you're going to finish fifth. They would have snapped your hands off. Without knowing anything else that was going to happen, they would have snapped your hands off. But when we factor in, you guys had a very messy season. You sacked yes. Nuno. You had, even under Conte, multiple bad runs. Harry Kane didn't bother his arse until the turn of the year. And at times... Spurs looked like a rudderless ship without any real direction. And that was obviously mostly pre-Conte. But even when he took over, there was a lot of griping about players. And there was a lot of... Ever since he took over, until the last week or so when he confirmed he's staying, there was, you know, is he going to stay? Is he going somewhere else? You had certain mischievous journalists trying to claim he'd offered his services to PSG, which personally I don't believe... Mm because I don't think he's that type. I think if it had come to the end of the season and PSG had approached him, I think he might have considered it, but I don't think he would have, while under contract with somebody else in the job at PSG, I don't think he would have made any kind of approach to them. I don't think that suits with the character of the man. So you guys had a messy season. United had their worst ever Premier League season. And West Ham 
fell apart in the league in the second half of the year because their focus was entirely on the Europa League. And then obviously Leicester had a disastrous season. So, you know, those around them, those they were competing with for that fourth place spot, because I think everybody accepted at the start of the year, City, Liverpool, Chelsea are going to be top four in whatever order. And it's one spot for the rest. And it seemed like United at the start of the year. With it, how much it they did. Spent. Everybody favoured them because they'd obviously gone big on Varane. They went big on Sancho. They brought in Cristiano. They'd finished second last year, even though that was largely down to Liverpool and the injuries that they had otherwise. But they still would have been top four. But everybody else around Arsenal, the other clubs they would have looked at as top four contenders at the start of the season had about as bad a season as they could possibly have had. I mean, even you guys finishing in fourth, you lost 11 games. Yeah, it's shocking. <laughs> Do you know? So the, the couple of things I always look at is is defensive record. How many goals per game did you concede? And I look at Arsenal and I see a team who conceded the eighth most goals, uh, the, the eighth fewest goals in the league. So it's not a particularly good defensive record. Conceding 48 in 38 games, not particularly good. And I look at how many games you lost. How hard were you to beat? Well, all of the top four lost less. United lost less. Brighton lost less. And Crystal Palace lost less. So again, you're looking at the team with the eighth eighth fewest defeats. So that, coupled with the statistics you mentioned that show them as being a fifth place team, across the course of the year, they were a Europa League team. It's just that the others were performing even worse than them. Mm. And then you can look at the last few games of the season because on multiple occasions, Tottenham were in a situation where top four was in your hands, win your games in hand, and you are, you're you going to be fourth. Yeah, and you blew them. Times. You blew them. Each and every time you blew them. And you gifted top four to them multiple times. And they gifted it right back. And for me... That's disappointing. Now, there's reasons to be optimistic about Arsenal. They have, I think, three quarters of a very good defence. I was high on Tommy Asu when they signed him. I didn't like him as a signing for you unless he was going to play right of the back three. Yeah. Certainly couldn't be a wing back, but as a defensive right back, I think he's very good. Kieran Tierney's very good. Injuries are an issue, but he is very good. And I do quite like Gabriel, even though he does have an error in him. I'm not at all sold on Ben White, not even slightly. I'm not sold on Ramsdale because if you look at Ramsdale's performance across the season, for the first, I think, 10, 15 weeks, he was really good and then he cratered. And his performance in the back half of the season was among the worst in the league. So that's a concern to me. You're still playing Granit Jacket in midfield. That's problematic because he's garbage. And as you said, the lack of goals really did sting them because they scored 61 goals this season. Leicester, who had a terrible season, scored more. All of the top four scored more. You're not going to get top four with a goal difference of plus 13 unless something weird happens in the league. It's just not going to be good enough. So I don't have the same level of optimism for them securing one of these top strikers as you do. Because of the following reasons. Number one, Manchester United are also interested. United will pay more and they'll pay bigger wages and they're a much bigger draw. 
So if it's a choice between United and Arsenal, I think most players pick United. Liverpool are looking for a number nine. Mane is gone. Diaz isn't the replacement for Mane. When Diaz arrived, Mane became the Firmino replacement. True. And now he's gone. Liverpool are in the market for a striker. And if it's a choice between Liverpool and Arsenal, it's not a competition. They're going to join us. So I do think they're going to have a tougher time. Isak is the one I am looking at who could possibly be there for them. But he's not a big time goal scorer. Not at this point. And the, and the reason he's the, cheap is because of the questions and the lack of performance. Exactly. It's it's can he like if you look at him, Darwin Nunes, and Victor Simeon, they're the, the big three that are out there potentially available. Well, he has by far the fewest goals. He has by far the most questions. Now I do think potentially he has the biggest upside. Yeah, totally. I think if all of them hit their very peak, he will be the best of them. But I also think it's the hardest path. I think Darwin and Osimian, how their games are, I think it's a clearer path for them to become the best versions of themselves. With him, I think it's more cloudy. With him, I think there's the highest bus potential. So that's where my concern is for them. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if, say, Darwin went to United and a Simeon went to Liverpool, or vice versa, and Arsenal got Isak. But the other thing is, without the Champions League money, they're not going to buy Isak at that £80 million buyout of his. Even in January, having wasted four months trying to sign Vlahovic, who clearly didn't want to join them, when they went for Isak, they were trying to negotiate way below the buyout clause. Now, Will that have annoyed Sociedad? Will that mean that if they go back, Sociedad will stand pat and say, no, pay the buyout or go away? Why would we sell him? He's under contract here now for four more years. Or, because if you're a Sociedad, do you gamble that he has a great season next year and then you get that high price? Or take the risk that he has another bad season and the price drops even further. So mm. it's a difficult path to get him. It's a difficult path for him to become the best version of himself. I think Arsenal need to lower their targets a little bit. And I also think that, I think you mentioned something important. Next season, they may get a higher grade than they're getting this season. And I'm giving them a C plus overall. So easier because, for you, for them to get a better grade. Yeah, because, but my, my, my thing is... I, a C plus might be harsh. I'll give them a B minus. I'll give them a B minus. But next season, they've got European football. And that's the other thing. They've no European football this season. Spurs did. United did. West Ham did. Leicester did. Leicester and West Ham went really deep in Europe. Yeah. So they're competing on two fronts the whole time. You guys, your first half of the season was ruined by the Conference League nonsense. United were in the Champions League into the knockout phases. So... None of that advantage that Arsenal had this year will be there next year. It's a much more difficult season. And I went through squad needs last week on two-footed. And mm. I have Arsenal needing six players, Kev. I think they need a starting striker, a starting central midfielder, yeah. and they're both going to be pricey. They need a backup right back. They potentially need a backup left back if Tavares is loaned out or sold. They need a backup to Gabriel at the left side of the defence because 
Arteta puts a lot of emphasis on playing out from the back and the passing angles that a left-footed centre-back create create knock-on effects down the line. So when you put a right-footer there, it changes not just yeah. how you're building out, but the geometry of your team. So I think they need a left-footed centre-back and I think they need one more for depth in midfield. So I think they need six players. It's a small squad. There's potentially a couple of others leaving. Now, they do need a backup goalkeeper as well, but it looks like they have that sorted with, is it Matt Turner coming in? Oh, so yeah. yeah. That's a lot to do with a Europa League budget. A lot to do with a Europa League budget. And I don't think they'll be as willing to spend this summer as they were last summer, regardless of what certain people will tell you. Because last summer, they would have been looking at it and thinking, right, free hit here. No European football. This is our big opportunity to take a massive swing, back Arteta and go for top four. They did it. It didn't work for them. They got fifth. I don't think the club internally will have been happy with fifth, especially come the end of the season. Like they gave Arteta that new contract with a few weeks to go in the season. When they had it in their hands, yeah. Exactly. That was almost a celebration of, yes, we've done it. We've gotten top four. And then they threw it away. So for me, I'll go I'll go B minus. And I, I think there's I still think there's big question marks over the the manager, the goalkeeper, Ben White. Now the one thing I will say, I think they've got a big upgrade at centre back if they want it, because William Saliba is a monster. Do you think that they will not screw that up? Oh, they'll find a way to screw it up. <laughs> they'll find a way. They'll find a way. Like it looks like Yuri Thielemans is their top target in midfield. And I've said before, if I was Leicester, I'd just call them and say, you can have Thielemans, you give us Saliba, and we'll call it even. And I think Arsenal would do it. Yeah, same. So, yeah. So, was it B plus from you? Yep. And a B minus from me. So, we'll move on then to Aston Villa. So... A strange season for Villa, their third season back in the Premier League. Last season, they'd finished 11th on 55 points, which was a great improvement on the previous season where they stayed up only on the basis of Hawkeye failing. They sold Jack Grealish for £100 million to Manchester City in, obviously, a, a British record transfer. And they went out and they spent that money on Danny Ings, Emmy Buendia, and Leon Bailey. They started the season in decent form. In their first six games, they won three and drew one. And things were looking a little bit promising. But the football they were playing was a little bit a little bit rough and ready. It didn't look like there was a real plan in place without Grealish. Because so much of their play prior to that, had gone through Grealish. And it looked like oftentimes players would receive the ball, look to the left wing for Grealish, (laughs) and when he wasn't there, have to figure out where to go after that. Then they had a run of five defeats in a row. They lost to Tottenham, Wolves, Arsenal, West Ham and Southampton. Now, that's not actually that terrible when you consider the teams that are in there. Spurs finished fourth, Arsenal fifth, West Ham seventh, and Wolves had a really good season bar the last two months. Southampton's didn't really bad result in there, but that was enough. They'd seen enough with Dean Smith. They had set a goal, I believe, of challenging for Europe. 
not necessarily getting Europe, but at least challenging, being in that eighth or ninth position and challenging for a European spot. These are very ambitious owners. They've pumped a lot of money into the club and they want to see a return on that investment. When things were going so badly, they dropped to 16th. They made the decision to bring in Steven Gerrard. Now, it's not a decision that I would have made. I'm not sold on Gerrard, the manager. But that's what they went with. And then they backed him in January. They bring in Luca Dina. They bring in Philip Coutinho on a, um, on a loan. And they bring in Callum Chambers from Arsenal on a free transfer. And, you know, their season never really got going. They end up finishing in 14th position. Defensively, they weren't good. Going forward, at times, they looked really, really good. They looked really confident. But at the same time, they were quite easy to stop when Ollie Watkins wasn't scoring goals. There mm. wasn't enough goals in the team in general. Was there was no to be reliable. The point of Ings, was that they saw that exactly. coming. Ings was meant to be that reliable source of goals, the guy who'll get you 15 in the league. And it just didn't happen for Danny Ings this season. Um, all competitions. I think Danny Ings scored seven goals. Seven goals, all in the league. Watkins got 11. Now, they were lucky in that Jacob Ramsey had a breakout year, got six. Coutinho got five. Matty Cash got four from right back, which was a great return. Buendia got four. But there was nobody reliable to score goals when they needed them. And you look at a lot of the, the defeats under Gerrard, and there's a lot of one-goal defeats in there. And you wonder if they'd had a more reliable goal scorer, could they have turned some of them into draws? Could they have gone on and won those games then, having gotten them level? Overall, I think it's a disappointing season for Villa, because to finish 14th, to finish winless in your last four, to only win two of your last 11, it, it has to be seen as a disappointment. But... That's not on Gerrard, and you do have to factor in a mid-season managerial change. So I would look at it and say, overall, I'll probably give them a C. But next season, I do think there's big, big expectations internally on what they should be. Gerrard himself said, finishing 14th is unacceptable for this club. And with the money they've spent, you have to agree, it is unacceptable for them. Now, they have a big summer, but they're already off to an aggressive start. Now, I have them down as needing seven players. I think they've already addressed three of them. So I think they need a starting striker, a goal scorer. I thought they should have bought Tammy last summer rather than Danny Ings. They haven't done that yet, but they are being linked to strikers. They needed a new number 10. They've got Coutinho done, so that's fine. They needed a starting centre-back because Tyron Mings is an atrocity. They've got Diego Carlos. I, I'm not overly keen on the deal, but I'm not going to criticise a team for addressing what's clearly a need. They brought in Bubakar Kamara on a Bosman to fill the defensive midfield spot that was a massive weakness for them this season. I think that's a hell of a signing. They need to sort out their backup goalkeeper. It may well be that they keep Robin Olsen. If so, that's that box ticked. They've got to get depth at fullback as well. You've got to find a way to have more cover for Maddie Cash and Luca Dini. With what Gerard demands of his fullbacks, you need to be able to give them breaks every now and then. 
And that break cannot involve Ashley Young playing in your football team in the Premier League in 2022. So backup right back, backup left back, backup keeper and a starting striker still to do. But three boxes already ticked. And I'll give them a C on the season. Yeah, I think I largely agree with your points, but it leads me to a, to a worse grade. Considering what they spent in the summer and what they spent in January bringing in Coutinho and what they've already done to bring him in. And um, I, I think they've shown so much ambition that where they ended up is, like you said, it's just kind of unacceptable for what they're trying to build. And it kind of has like an Everton-ness to it. We're like, they're making these big signings, but it isn't translating to the pitch. You mentioned the managerial change. Um, I, I will give Jared credit on one thing, even though we absolutely smashed them um, in our match. They had a really interesting idea for how to stifle Kane, which was to just constantly mark his right foot to prevent that ball over the top to Sonny. Now, Kane is uh, world class and decided to head a ball over the top to Sun, which you can't really do much about. But that was one of the more interesting tactical ideas I've seen to try to stop Kane. Whereas like other people just like put two people on him or try to prevent the ball into him. But just being like, no, you don't get to use your right foot today. I thought was really interesting. Didn't actually work out, but it, it was an interesting idea. And it just felt like it was worth noting. Um, but yeah, I, I've given them a D because you can't spend that much and get that little in the league. And it, it could have been worse. Um, the, the fact that they only finished with 45 points, like it's 10 points clear of safety. Like that's, that's not really an issue. Didn't feel like they were ever like really in the relegation race, but you know, a couple fewer wins and that becomes a really stressful season after how much you put into it. So yeah, I've given them a D and I do think next year will be a huge catalyst point i know that gerard just got there but if they're listing in the low teens again in december you have to imagine they'll make another move yeah yeah i think so i don't think they'll give managers much rope there i think they'll back them but i don't think they'll allow them to have you know long stretches of of mediocrity um i i suppose my c is 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 definitely generous but i'm also looking at things like you know they won 13 games this season you know, that's more than Brighton, who finished ninth. It's more than Palace, who finished above them. Yeah, that's fair. So they've shown an ability to win games. What Gerard needs to do is make them harder to beat. And I think even I think he even managed that through the season. Like, as I said, there wasn't many wallopings once Gerard took over. You guys are the only team that actually walloped them. You beat them 4-0. Um, but everything else is a, is a one-goal defeat, bar the Chelsea game. So if you're if you're only two defeats under this manager by more than a single goal are against third and fourth, I think you are improving in that regard. What Villa don't know how to do yet is is draw games. They only drew six on the season. They've got to figure out how to grind out draws. And if they do that, it can make a big difference for them. But yeah, my C is probably a bit generous, um, but I'll stick with it. I'll stick with it. Yeah, so I, I guess this is kind of a natural segue into Brentford, who I'll be talking about, because Brentford finished just uh, a point above the Aston Villa side we were just talking about, obviously investing 
way less <laughs> into their side. And honestly, it's about as good as a debut season can really go. I can't really think of any moment where it felt like they were in the relegation fight, which is always a, a pretty nice accomplishment for a recently promoted side. Um, and if you don't agree, just ask Norwich and Watford, who both finished higher than Brentford in the championship, yet Brentford had more points than the two of them combined in the Premier League this season, which is pretty dang impressive. Um, I think it was around the time that we recorded the January show um, where they were kind of struggling. They'd lost Raya and basically just hadn't kept a clean sheet after he went down. Um, but uh, they ultimately got him back. Obviously, they brought in Christian Eriksen in January, and we didn't really know what that was going to look like. We just thought it was like a good high upside flyer. Well, little did we know that basically within a month, he was going to be back to his best. Um, and I don't know if you've seen it, but the the player chart for Ivan Tony, like those octographs that you see pre Ericsson and post Ericsson is wild. And I think there's a, a genuine conversation to be had about whether or not that was Ericsson just unlocking Tony's upside and potential or whether he relied on Ericsson too much. Um, but based on the talent, I, I, I think it's the former. I think Ericsson just helped give Tony more opportunities, especially from set pieces. Because I think that's something that was like really crazy uh, for them is I think they finished top five in set piece goals on the season, um, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, a, a third of their goals came from dead ball situations this season, uh, which I'm not sure you can rely on like a lot. But they were really good at them. Almost almost took Tottenham apart multiple times with that kind of like back post run that Tony was doing with Erickson lofting the cross in. Which is one way to stop him from hitting the first man, which he seemed to always do for Tottenham. Um, but anyway, I, I don't know if this is like just the red and white stripes thing or maybe I'm, I'm just being a little too skin deep on this. But I kind of see a lot of Sheffield United in them. Like a somewhat unique play style, scoring a lot from set pieces. No player is really like significantly better than the rest around them. Um, I guess Ericsson is kind of the exception, but like Tony and Mboimo are, are kind of in that, that same area. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really know, j just like that Sheffield United side, I don't know which position you like focus on. You're like, this is what I'm going to improve. Unless you do lose Ericsson, in which case you probably need to bring in like an, another 10-ish player in, in that position. But yeah, there's just aren't really weak spots. Um, even if they are weak, though, I think the, the big difference between those two clubs that I just perhaps lazily compared is that Tony is much better than anything Sheffield United ever had up front. He scored 12 yeah. goals on 30 shots, which is pretty dang impressive. I don't know how sustainable that is, but I wouldn't be shocked if just both numbers go up. He has more shots and more goals next season. Um, but to do that, like I said, they they'd probably need to replace Ericsson. And, and they, it might be two players because you might need a set piece taker. That is separate from your number 10. Lord knows Tottenham have tried for a long time to be able to find a player that can do both uh, with attempts with Ericsson, attempts with Brian Heal. Um, but so it's not easy. But if they were able to do that, I, I think they could really, uh, really impress next season. It's an A for me for this year. Looked like a perfectly capable mid-table Premier League side. Uh, and, and as long as they don't regress too much, I think they'll be able to consolidate that position in 22-23. But I think the big concern is figuring out which players you're willing to sacrifice to continue to improve as opposed to Sheffield United, who outside of Sander Berger largely were like, ah, this team was really good last year. Maybe it'll be good this year again. And then obviously left them a little short. Yeah, I think so. I also think they're just, they're a much better um, organization when it comes to like recruitment and things like that. Anyway, oh, sure. I think they're one of the smartest clubs in the country. I will say I did 
did have a feeling that they were going to get dragged into that relegation battle in January and February when they didn't win a single game and only took one point from the two months. I thought they were going to find themselves in a lot of trouble. But then into March, and it really just started clicking for them, and they win seven out of their last 11 games. So I think they had a very, very good season. If you're a newly promoted team and you survive in this division, it's an A. There's no doubt it's an A. Uh, I think they are one of the teams that could go the Sheffield United route where second season syndrome is a big problem for them next season. I think, like you mentioned, Ericsson was so important to them in that run-in. Once he found his feet and really started playing regularly, they were just transformed. And obviously they changed shape a bit as well, going from a back five to a back four. That accomplished two things. It allowed them to get another attacking player on the team. But it also kind of disguised what had been a problematic position for them in the first half of the year, which was that right wing back position. Because Sergi Canos is not yeah. a starting Premier League caliber player. And Roarslev, I'm not sure he's a football player at all. I have them down as needing seven players for next season. Three starters, four depth pieces. A starting centre-back, I think you've got to upgrade on Ethan Pinnock this summer, I thought. He looked fine in the first few months. And then teams started to figure out what his weak points were, how slow he was. I think you've got to get a starting centre-back, a starting right-back or right-wing-back, depending on what shape you're going to play get Ayer more into the centre. A starting midfielder if they lose Eriksen. Norgaard I really like. Janolt I really like. They've got Onyeka. They've got some decent depth there. But they've got to find a way to either keep Eriksen or replace him. I really want him to stay there. There's something brilliant about Christian Eriksen at Brentford. And then they need a backup goalkeeper because when they lost Rea, they were absolutely hopeless. They needed a bit of depth at centre-back as well, because you can't be playing people like Charlie Good in the Premier League. They need a backup to Rico Henry at left wing-back, because, again, he's had injury problems in the past, and you've got to be able to rest him. And you've got to find a backup for Tony, because he missed some games this season with injuries and COVID, and when he wasn't there, they looked like they could have played for weeks and weeks on end without scoring a single goal. So you've got to get somebody who can at least be a backup to maybe someone that can play with him at times as well, because Mbomo had a weird season. He missed an awful lot of big chances this year. Tony should have had double figures assists just on passes to him, and he made an absolute hames of things. So I think it's a big summer coming for them, but I agree with you. It's it's an A season. You've stayed in the division. You've done it on a, a small budget. You've done it sticking to your principles. You're always going to get an A from me on a season like that. Uh, moving on to the club that they're probably trying to model themselves on in many ways, Brighton and Hove Albion, similar size of club, similar approach, uh, owners from similar backgrounds. Owners are big rivals in the gambling world. And Brighton have very much established themselves as a Premier League team. This was their best Premier League season. Um, I thought they showed everything that Graham Potter has been working on the last few years really started to come to fruition. They still struggle to score goals. We know that's the knock on them. Only 42 on the season. But defensively, they were strong. They were very, very hard to beat. Only lost 11 games. That's the same as Spurs. Less than United, less than West Ham, less than Leicester, and less than Arsenal. 
They had a better defensive record than everybody other than Wolves and the top four. So that's impressive to me as well. We know they need a number nine. It's the big knock on them. But overall, I think it is a B-plus season for Brighton and Hove Albion. For a club that Mm. size, to be able to maintain a high level across a season is really good. I think they've got a key summer coming up. Yves Basuma could leave, so they will need someone in midfield. But they've already got a lot of talent there with the likes of Mwepu, Casado, Jakub Moda will be back next season. Kozlowski, the young Polish kid, could come in and be involved. They've got to get someone if Basuma leaves, though, because you can't just let that level of talent go without replacing him. I think they need a starting centre-back to complement Dunk and Webster in the back three. So you play Joe, Joel Veltman a little bit less. The, a starting nine is obvious. Everybody knows they need it. They know they need it. They've been trying to get one for a couple of years. You've got to get a backup to Lamptey so that you can play Lamptey as your right wing back. And when he's not there, you've got someone that can do a similar job. It can't be, well, we're going to stick Joel Veltman out there because he's a centre-back who looks looks lost. And a bit more depth at centre-back as well because if you've got a good starting three and you've got Veltman and you can bring back Leo Ostergaard, just get one more. can be a young one to develop. Maybe you find a long-term successor for Lewis Dunk, something along those lines. I think five players this summer, three starters, Assuming Basuma leaves, my assumption is he will. But if he doesn't, it's two starters and two depth pieces. It's not a massive overhaul. It's just a matter of improving areas that need to be improved on. You're good in a lot of areas. You're good at centre-back with Duncan Webster. You're good at the wing-back spots. You're good in midfield. You're good behind the striker. And I love a lot of the players they've got, like Trossard and McAllister and, and Mopey. I like them off a striker, but... None of them are number nine. You've got to find a number nine. Do that, and I think they can repeat the trick next season and get a and get a, a top half finish and maybe even push for Europe. So it's an A for me. Yeah, I've gone with the B um, for them, but yeah, maybe, maybe that's too harsh. I mean, a top half finish, like you said, for for a club like them, has to just be. Uh, a, a pretty massive accomplishment. Also, they're finally starting to bring through some of the youngsters that they kind of took gambles on when they were younger, like McAllister, who <laughs> we probably talked about like three years ago. Um, but their recruiting strategy has been really solid. Cucurella, I think, was really good in his first year, and it seems like they're already bringing in a replacement, either for this year or, or for in future, because um, I'm sure they'll make just an absurd amount of profit on them. Also, mentioning that the owners are in the gambling industry kind of makes sense uh, with, with a lot of the like flyers they've taken on young, talented players in the past. And Yeah, I, I think that's finally starting to come to fruition. Also, I, I think um, moving Dan Byrne at the, at the right time to Newcastle and starting that pipeline, like if you have any player that you want to sell for too much money, you know, now you have Newcastle's number uh, on that. But yeah, I, I, I can't really disagree with anything you've said there. Definitely need someone not Neil Mopay up front. But uh, yeah, ultimately, yeah, a really strong season from Brighton. And one of the best run clubs, one of the best managed clubs. I, I, I'm i really glad that Graham Potter finally got this like top 10 finish because there's another manager that I like that we'll talk about later that uh, having gotten his fourth straight you know, place in the teens, maybe the promise isn't there, but after how much hype was around Graham Potter last year about him potentially being uh, the Tottenham manager, 
um, during that cycle. And then him being like, this is a better situation for me right now. And it was um, <laughs> that, yeah, him getting them into into ninth, I think, is really good for his future. It's really good for Brighton. And if you are him, why would you leave right now? You're continuing to build. You're continuing to grow these players. Um, obviously, with his uh, kind of psychology background, I'm sure now that he knows them, he he wouldn't want to have to like restart that process anywhere else. So it, it just seems like the perfect partnership right now. We we talked in the first ever season of the EPL Roundtable and what the year of our Lord 2012 about how loyalty only works as long as, you know, both of you are growing at the same speed. And I think right now they are. So, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely a B or maybe that's harsh, but I, I have them for a B this season and excited to see what comes from them next, because like we're saying that they have a good squad, a good manager, they run well. I, I can really only see them going up. Um, yeah, well, we'll carry into Burnley then, who about as opposite <laughs> Brighton as we were just talking about as you can get. Um, I've given them an F because you got relegated and that for, for a club like Burnley who had established themselves as Premier League player, as like a genuine Premier League club for so long. I think is is really damning. Um, I don't know if you remember, but I actually gave them a pretty high grade in the summer for their summer mm. business, um, bringing in Cornet, Collins, and Connor Roberts. And all of that largely worked out. The issues were just uh, too strong elsewhere. Also in January, we both thought Val Veghorst would be an upgrade on Chris Wood. I still think he's a better player, but that did not Same. work out for them at all. Um, in terms of outs, Ben Gibson, they had basically already shunned Robbie Brady kind of aged out, obviously selling Chris Wood to then relegation rivals. Newcastle seemed really dicey. Uh, it probably is, but he didn't score loads of goals for Newcastle and Newcastle didn't finish anywhere near them. So I, I think that narrative, uh, <laughs> ended up not really mattering, but the, the, I, I honestly think it was just the lack of spending under Dice over the years that caught up with them. Um, I actually thought, like I said, the summer business was pretty good, but it reminded me of Tottenham's last summer under Pochettino with like Ndombele and Lacelso and Sessegnon, um, where like you're trying to make up in one window for what you should have been doing over the last two or three years, betting these players in. And like I said, the signings were actually pretty good, but it just kind of had that thing to it where you're already kind of starting at a losing point. So unless everything goes right, things go really wrong really quickly. And it felt like at a certain point, the dressing room just stopped listening to Sean Dyche. And once that happens, there's not really a solution because you can't get rid of the whole squad. So you end up getting rid of the manager. Um, and, and I don't want to be like too revisionist about that. I don't think this turnaround happens with Sean Dyche. Um, the, the points per game increased pretty dramatically as soon as Michael Jackson took over, obviously, with that one month and, and getting manager of the month. But he gave them a chance on the final day, but they didn't manage to overturn Newcastle, who I honestly thought were kind of going to be on the beach after that Arsenal win, uh, which was, I, I think, their was that their home, their final home match? Yeah, the Arsenal game. Was the like Arsenal match? Yeah, so I'm just really surprised that at Turf Moor, Burnley weren't able to do it because all they had to do was match Leeds' result. Um, so for a while, it looked like they just need the one goal, but then Leeds scored a winner uh, right at the death, which really, really sealed it. But yeah, it's it's... It's a tough one for Burnley. They they just tried to hang on to that core for far too long. Uh, I don't think they tried to hang on to Dice for too long. It is one of those situations, again, kind of like Pochettino, where, like, was he rejecting players or was the club just not bringing him players? But that that core was stale and stagnant for years. Um, and now they put them in a situation where they could be losing Tarkovsky and me in the same season for free. Pope wants to move on. 
you know, Veghorst and Cornet could very easily find other clubs. McNeil could easily find another club. Although what position someone else plays him in, I have literally no idea. Um, some Spurs people are saying we should uh, buy him to play him as a right wing back. I know he wants to be a central midfielder. He's played as a left winger for a lot of his career, kind of shifted to the right under um, Michael Jackson there. So that's that's all very weird. And and who knows where they're even going to go next? Because it sounded like they had company locked up like a week and a half ago. Yeah. That just seems to have quieted. I don't know if that means it's done and they just can't announce it yet or if there's problems there. The, the, the one upside is that with all those players that are looking to leave, they could make a lot of money. And with the parachute payments, that could be a lot of a lot of money. But I have no confidence that all the money from player sales and savings and wages won't just go towards the debts that they've accrued, that that Mm. Pace has accrued with his own debts buying the club, but it's also the club's debts. It is not a good situation there. If the money goes into the squad, you have a lot of potential to upgrade. Just just like with Palace last season, obviously they're going to be in the championship, so they won't be able to bring in the same caliber of player. But Palace looked to be in really big trouble last season. They lost like eight starting players and their long-term manager, but they rebuilt in a really healthy way and, and I think have massively improved because of it. There's a chance that they could do that, but I'm not very confident that that they're going to get all of that money to, to put back into the squad under insert manager's name here. Um, but yeah, it's an F for me. It, that said, if you replayed the final 10 weeks of the season like 100 times, Burnley probably end up safe in like 70 of them. Yeah. But the fact that Everton turned things around at the exact same time, Leeds were in like the deepest slide of their season, managed to win just one of their last five, but that one is what ends up making them safe. And, and a draw would have as well because Burnley lost uh, to their credit. But yeah, it's 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 it feels really unlucky, like like a like a perfect storm of problems for them. Problems on the pitch, problems with the manager, problems with other clubs stepping up in matches that no one really expected them to. But for for the squad manage it, for the squad management, for the relegation, for everything that happened this season, I just think it has to be an F. Yeah, I mean, I think the the key thing here is that it's the summer of 2020 that they really failed on, where the only player they signed. Um, was Dale Stevens for £500,000 and he's not a Premier League caliber player and never has been. And it meant that they were always sort of sort of a year behind and they had really stagnated. I mean, last season, they, not the season just finished the one before, they finished 17th. And there were warning signs then that something needs to change here. Now, they did have a good summer, there's no doubt. Nathan Collins is a very good centre-back. Max Cornet is a very good player. Connor Roberts is is a decent right back. But it wasn't enough. There were still needs left in the squad. And the, the reason there were needs left is because they'd done nothing the summer before when they lost a whole bunch of players on free transfers. You remember how the likes of Jeff Hendrick and Joe yeah. Hart and people like that, they all left weeks and weeks before the season was even over. Because their contracts ran out and Burnley weren't willing to pay them on a short-term six-week contract to see out the rest of the season because Mm. they were so cheap about it. And that's ultimately what took them down is how cheap they've been for years. Um, They've got a massive summer coming up, like like a a next 10-year defining summer coming up. 
where, like you said, they could sell a bunch of players like Nick Pope, Max Cornet, Voot Veghorst, uh, Dwight McNeil, Josh Brownhill, Charlie Taylor. All of them are good enough to play for a lot of Premier League clubs and would bring in substantial money. But where is that money going to go? Is it going to go to replacing them and adding the other players you need? Or is it going to go to servicing the debt? If it goes to servicing the debt, we can wave goodbye to Burnley as being a Premier League team anytime, maybe ever again. If it goes to reinvestment, then they've got a chance. I've got them down. Now, I haven't factored in Ben Mee. I think Ben Mee might stay. I think there's a loyalty there that he might stay. There is an option to extend his contract for a year. So I think they might try and convince him to stay. Now, they might have to reduce his wages, and he might not be willing to do that. He'll be a good pickup as a depth centre-back for a number of Premier League clubs, though. But I've got them needing a starting goalkeeper to replace Pope, who's definitely not going to the Championship. At least one starting midfielder. A starting winger to replace Cornet. Two depth centre-backs behind what I assume will be Collins and me. But if me goes, then you need a starting centre-back and the two depth centre-backs. And you've got to get a better backup left-back than... Um, than Eric Peters and that's assuming Charlie Taylor stays which he may not it's a lot to do and it's the fact that there's still no manager like Dyche was sacked in April we're almost two months on from Sean Dyche leaving the idea of appointing Michael Jackson was this gives us time to do a proper managerial search I'm sorry, but even the most in-depth managerial search doesn't take two months. This should be sorted now. You should have someone in place planning what they want to do this summer, looking at all the different alternatives if Nick Pope leaves or if Max Cornet leaves or if Dwight McNeil leaves. Instead, you're going to end up scrambling and those players are going to be standing there looking, going, you know what, I do love this club and I'd love to help get them back up. But who's running the show? There's nobody here. There's no manager. There's no no direction because who's making those decisions? I think Burnley are in massive trouble. Do you know, when I looked at their season initially, I looked at the fact that defensively they were still they were still fairly good. Yeah. I mean, they they conceded less goals than Manchester United. Less goals than Leicester. Than Newcastle, than Brentford, than Villa, than Southampton, Everton, and Leeds, as well as the bottom two. That's pretty good. Their issue was, as it always was with Burnley, they can't score enough goals. They lost only 17 times. Everton, Leeds, Brentford, and Aston Villa all lost more games than that. But they only won seven games, and that's ultimately what took them down. Too many draws. 14 draws, only Brighton. And Crystal Palace drew more games in the league. They just didn't win enough. And that's ultimately what took them down. And I think originally I gave them like a D minus, but you, you got relegated. You got relegated. It does. You're right. It has to be an F. You got yeah. relegated. That That's where it has to go. You're out. So, yeah, uh, it's an F, I think, then from both of us. So moving on then to Chelsea who finished third in their first full season under Thomas Tuchel. But it's still a very disappointing season for Chelsea because pre-season, everybody put them in the title race. 
the assumption was that having won the European Cup with a real manager now rather than a PE teacher, we're going to see what this Chelsea squad is capable of. Now, I always had some concerns over the defence because, for me, the reason Tuchel plays a three is not because he wants to, it's because he has to, because he doesn't have defenders good enough to play in a two. Like, Thiago Silva, when he's tried to play him in a two, was embarrassed. Rudiger the same. Aspie can't play as as centre-back in a a two-man pairing. The only one you had was Christensen, and he had the contract stuff. There are mitigating circumstances around their season, obviously, where the sanctions came in. How much of an effect that had, I don't know. I look at their home form, and it was abysmal. Through the season, they just couldn't find ways to win games at home. And that's always going to be a concern. If you can't win your home games, you're definitely not going to challenge for the league title. And they won only nine home games all season. That's very, very poor. They did get third, but they only finished three points clear of Spurs, largely because of their own failures in the last half of the season. In their last, what, 10 games, they only won four of them. Three defeats, three draws. They only won two of their last six home games. These are things that would concern me if I was a Chelsea fan. I think they're in, they're in for a transitional period moving forward where there's not going to be the same level of money to spend. For the first time since the 70s, they're going to have to become a profitable business, which is an incredible thing to say, but it's been 50 years of Chelsea consistently losing money at a level where normal businesses would be shut down. But you look back to when Ken Bates bought them in 81 for a pound. He sold them in 03 with massive debts on the brink of liquidation. Roman has run them consistently at a substantial loss, and he has covered that loss. Todd Bowley and co aren't going to do that. There's two types of American owners in football. There's the ones that care about the dividends and the ones that care about the profits. And I think he's going to be one that cares about the profits. Luckily for Mm. Chelsea, I don't think he'll be a Glazers. I don't think he'll be necessarily a Stan Kroenke. I think he'll look to be a John Henry. And John Henry has run Liverpool without ever putting any of his own money into the club. Other than the initial investment to buy, FSG haven't invested money in Liverpool. They've never taken anything out. They've had yeah, the club which is, run which is sustainably. The upside. Yes, exactly. But that club has run sustainably under its own power since they bought the club 12 years ago. They've grown the club incrementally and thus grown the value. So where FSG are looking is our way of getting the massive money out of it is that we're going to sell this club eventually for $5 billion. We paid $350 million. We're going to get $5 billion out of it. The Glazers, they've just milked the dividends out of the club. Now, they'll also make a substantial profit when they sell, but they've been taking hundreds of million a year out of United in the, in the form of dividends. Chelsea aren't big enough to do that. They don't generate enough money to do that. They don't generate enough money either 
to operate how Liverpool operate. So that's going to have to change. And of course, the bigger issue here is that the owners have massively overpaid for this asset. So they've paid 4.2 billion. I believe 1.5 of that is to go into a fund to cover the cost of running the academy, running the women's team, and either building a new stadium or complete rebuild of Stamford Bridge. So they've paid 3 billion, basically, or just under 3 billion for a club that's valued at 1.5 billion, according to Forbes. So it's a longer road for them to get their profit. But that's what it's all going to be about. Like, these private equity firms like Clearlake, they're not in this for the fun of it. They're, They're not in it to recklessly spend. Chelsea fans have gotten themselves very excited about Todd Bowley. Todd Bowley's a non-decision-making minority owner of the Dodgers. He's a non-decision-making minority owner of the Lakers. And Chelsea fans have looked at the Lakers, looked at the Dodgers and go, oh, look how much money they spend. Those clubs, the Lakers and the Dodgers, they print money. The Lakers are by far and away the most Mm. profitable NBA franchise. And the Dodgers are second only to the Yankees. Chelsea are not on the level of United. They're not on the level of Liverpool. They're more in the Spurs-Arsenal type of range in terms of the actual size of the club and the actual money coming into the club without Roman. So I do think there's going to be a transitional period here for Chelsea. Now, I've got them needing four signings this summer. Two starting centre-backs to replace Christensen and Rudiger and two starting backup, sorry, two backup wing-backs because you've got to have cover for James, you've got to have cover for Chilwell and it looks like Alonso will leave. So I've got them needing four players. Chelsea fans are under the assumption they're going to spend £200 this summer. I don't believe that will be the case. Maybe Todd Bowley and co will go with the one big splashy summer. But I think they're about to see this club be completely turned round into a more sustainable model, a model, a one that's based on profit and loss and has to be financially viable on its own two feet. These guys aren't going to put money in year on year. Overall, I think it's a C plus season for them because I think the expectations of them were much more than what they achieved. And they lost two cup finals, which I'm just holding against them as well. Yeah, I've actually given them a worse grade. I gave them a D minus. And it honestly would have been an F if they had managed to slide out of the Champions League, which they did their best attempt at doing in the last few weeks, as you as you kind of pointed out there. But yeah, they, they bought up for a title challenge in the summer. They brought in Lukaku. And maybe the reason I'm giving them a worse grade is because I thought they were going to be so much better. I had them as title winners, basically, the second they signed Lukaku. Because the issue was they couldn't rely on Timo Werner up front. Obviously, they had just come off of winning the Champions League. I was like, yep, that's that's pretty much all you need. Also, didn't they uh, – what, what was his name? The guy they signed from Atletico Madrid, and then he just basically never played. So, they so, signed one, of, was, one yeah. of the best midfielders in the world. Didn't play. And didn't didn't play him. Yeah, so that was very weird. But yeah, with, with those signings, I was like pretty confident that they were going to win the title or at least be up there. Then I gave them an F in January because they were starting to slip and they did nothing about it. And they just kept not doing anything about it. You mentioned the uh, 
the losses in two finals, obviously both on penalties. The first one far more hilarious than the second. Um, but I just think that they set themselves up for this to be the season that Liverpool actually had of like contend in the Premier League, contend in Europe, contend in the domestic cups, obviously making it to the final of both domestic cups before ultimately losing both. But I don't think a club like Chelsea gets credit for that in what, as you're saying, is kind of like the last year of the Abramovich era with Tuchel, with this like super um, enriched squad. So yeah, I, I've, I've given it a D minus and just saved themselves get it from getting an F because like towards the end, I, it might have been six or seven weeks out. I went on our show and I was like, I am more confident that Tottenham will catch Chelsea than they'll finish ahead of Arsenal. Obviously, the math didn't end up working out there. Tottenham finished three points behind Chelsea with a far worse goal difference. But like that's how it felt for me. Like in like March and April was that Chelsea were just kind of toiling away till the end of the season, which, you know, makes sense. If you're a professional, and all of a sudden the company you work for is thrown into like massive drama and scandal um what which also impacts your potential future and like i'm sure everybody read the articles about how you know they had to take all their bags out of their hotel rooms before matches and take them with them to stadiums because they couldn't afford the like late fees um if they overstayed checkout times at hotels i'm sure that was all very jarring from like a person that works at a company level but uh overall it, it just has to be a demise and yeah all the abramovich stuff i it is just short of an f for me Um, we'll go from there into Crystal Palace, though, who I am much less harsh on. I, I think I mentioned it earlier. Maybe it was during the Brentford section. I don't really recall. But um, I – oh, it was during Burnley, of course, with, with all the turnover that they're going to have. I'll, I'll be honest. I had Palace being in the relegation race at the start of the season. Not the relegation zone, but I had them being in that relegation race. Um, but but by the time we did our transfer window show in, uh, I guess it would have been September, um, I was already pretty confident that that, that wasn't going to be the case. Um, but but I, I do really want to restress the situation that they were in, which was getting rid of seven or eight regular starters, getting rid of Roy Hodgson, who had been your manager for over three years, um, and then taking that like huge amount of money, questions, doubt, and turning it into a younger squad, an improved squad. Uh, and I also think you have to give massive credit to Patrick Vieira, who was not their first choice manager, uh, only three or four years into his career. Um, and I, I think he did a really admirable job with that side. I, I think there have to be some questions about what happened with like Elise and Edouard and Eze, none of whom really shone this year. I don't know if that's a system thing, if it's just that they're still young players, so you aren't always going to get the best out of them thing. But that was... A little concerning. Um, but at the other end of the pitch, things were great. Um, defensively, they were pretty fantastic. Uh, seventh best defense, despite having two new center backs in Gwei and Anderson. A young developing left back in Mitchell. Somehow still relying on Joel Ward for the majority of their right back slots in the year of our Lord 2022. And Nathaniel um, Klein when it wasn't Joel Ward who correct. Was, was finished two years ago. <laughs> Absolutely true. They both were. Um, but with that setup, they still managed to have the seventh best defense. I, I don't think I'm talking too crazy when I say they could legitimately have a top five defense next year with more experience all playing together and an improvement at right back. Um, the the obvious like standout and also hole that they're going to have to fix um, is going to be central midfield because they brought in Connor Gallagher, who was fantastic, more fantastic the first half of the season, to be fair. But, 
you know, having, what did he end up with? Eight goals and three assists, which is, you know, the second most goal involvement in your team, and he's on loan. you you got to imagine he's heading back to Chelsea or that they're going to sell him for, like, something stupid, like $30 million plus. Although, if Palace could get him for, like, a Joe Willicky 25 rising to 30, they should absolutely do that. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not sure he's going to be that cheap for them, especially after getting a young player of the week, uh, of the year nomination, um, which Kulisowski definitely should have gotten instead. But anyway, Gallagher, really impressive. Not sure if they get him back. So that'll probably be the position that they need to fill in. But the squad is talented enough. I was impressed enough by Vieira. I think that they're, they're going to take another step forward next season for this year. I'll give them a B next year. I think we'll see him in the top 10. Yeah, I, I'm hugely hugely impressed by what i've seen this season from crystal palace because like you i wasn't sure on the managerial appointment clearly they weren't either because it took them so long and like you said he wasn't first choice they went a long way down the road with lucian Favre. they interviewed steve cooper they interviewed a few others nuno and they eventually nuno nuno looked like he was going there but eventually it worked out for them. Like your managerial search seems to take ages. Now that's in part because you, you sacked um, Mourinho in what April. Mm-hmm. But they didn't appoint a manager until nearly a week after you guys. Um, big turnover in the squad. But I, I thought they did such clever business last year. Like I know Elise was inconsistent, but for that age of a player in his first season in the Premier League, I was still impressed. Um, Mark Wehi was a runaway success. Jokey Manderson was a runaway success. I thought Will Hughes was good for them. Uh, Edward was inconsistent. But again, coming down from Scotland, it's a big step up in quality. Uh, and like you said, Conor Gallagher was, was one of the signings of the season by anybody. And replacing him is going to be huge. They do have a huge hole at right back. Joel Ward and Nat Klein will always give you everything they have. So you can't criticise them in terms of effort. It's just a lack of quality. So, yeah, you're right. Starting right back is definitely a hole. They need a starting goalkeeper as well. I think Gaeta's best days are behind him. But it looks like they're going to sign Sam Johnston uh, on a free from West Brom, which will be a decent signing. And now we have to go with Fraser Forster. (laughs) Yeah, which is a bit ugly. We'll come to that in part two, but that's a bit ugly. Um, they need a starting midfielder to replace Gallagher. They also need a starting holding midfielder. They need they need an upgrade on Koyate. And then you can free Koyate up to go and be like one of your rotational depth players. Um, they'll hope to get more from Eze next year. He'll be a year further off the Achilles tear. So you'd expect him at full speed next season. They've got to get depth at centre-back. They've got to upgrade on the likes of Martin Kelly and James Tompkins because you can't be relying on them. Now, this could be a good landing spot for Ben Mee if he does want a Premier League move. Uh, If you could land him and then a young centre-back to develop behind your two starters, you'd be in great, you'd be in a great situation. So I've got them needing six for the summer. I think it's a, it's another big summer for them. The next step in this rebuild. And it's not just a normal rebuild. Like this is a cultural rebuild for Palace. Because under Hodgson and to be fair, all the managers that came before him since Steve Steve Koppel, they were horrible to watch. Under Allardyce and Warnock and Pardew and P. 
Pulis and all the rest of the Gammon and Grady brigade, brigade that wandered in the door there. They were horrible to watch. But this year, Palace were fun. They were loads and loads of fun to watch. And that's a massive change for them. They've taken a new approach in their recruitment. I think that's going to extend into how they recruit with their academy, how aggressive they can be. I think for a lot of young players who maybe don't make the grade at Arsenal or Spurs or Chelsea, Palace will be there to hoover up the best of those. And I think that's a very valuable thing that they can do. And it will save them fortunes down the line. Like if if one of the bigger London clubs is foolish enough to release a a 15-year-old Declan Rice and Palace could nab him and develop him, I think that would be great for them. Um, So, yeah, I, I think... I think it's a, a, I'm going to give them an A. I'm going to give them an A minus, but I'm going to give them an A. Because I think with with how much turnover there was and how much uncertainty there was, added to completely changing the mindset of the team and the mindset of the existing players and getting them going from playing one very specific Roy Hodgson-type way to a far more expressive, expansive, aggressive style of play, I think it's an A minus. I'm I'm very impressed with what I saw from Crystal Palace mm. this season. And like you said, I do think there's scope for that defense to become a top five defense in the league. Because I I've said this before, Chelsea have made a lot of mistakes over the years in terms of selling young players and not giving players enough time. And obviously De Bruyne and Salah are the two most high-profile examples, but I think they will massively come to regret what they did with Mark Wehi, because if you were Chelsea and you were losing Rudiger on a free, wouldn't the ideal situation be to have Mark Wehi coming back <laughs> off alone and yep. slot him in? Wouldn't the ideal situation be to have Christensen leaving and Fikayo Tomori to step into the... Like, what have you done here? That's two top-class centre-backs that you have sold for a decent fees, no question. 27, I think, for Tamori, uh, about 19.20 for Gwehi. But you're going to have to spend 40 or 50 million, not to get better centre-backs, but to get the same level of centre-backs now. Mm. That's that's just foolish. To whom um, Chelsea means much less. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And the same the same situation will, will happen with Conor Gallagher if they sell him. Like, just to... On Chelsea, I've said on two-footed multiple times this season, for me, there is, barring goalkeepers, there is a Chelsea Academy 11 plus loads and loads of squad depth that could be a top four contender in this league that Mm. could win cups. And that, like one FA Cup with a Chelsea team of, just as an example, Reese James at one at right back, Tino Livramento at left back, Tamori and Gwehi as your centre backs. Uh, actually, you could go Tariq Lamptey as your right mm-hmm. back if you wanted. You could go Lamptey, Gwehi, Tamori, and Livramento. Reese James, Declan Rice, and Connor Gallagher as a three in midfield, and then Mason Mount behind, say, Armando Brogia and Tammy Abraham, or whichever other attackers you want to use there, Harvey Vale, um, Callum Hudson-Odoi, 
that winning a cup with something like that, where almost the entire team has come through your academy, one cup would be more meaningful than all the stuff you bought and get you more respect from the greater footballing community than all the success that you bought using Roman's blood money. And I think if Chelsea are smart, because their academy is, I believe, the best in Europe, I think that's the path they go down. And like, there's so many other players they could have listed there that came to that academy. Tino Angerin, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, both Chalabas, uh, Levi Colwell. There's just so much talent has come through that academy in recent years. And very little of it has been given real opportunity in the first team. Only Reese James and Mason Mount really have been given real opportunity. And that's what I mean by with Crystal Palace. If they can hoover up players that Chelsea are willing to sell, like if they could have got Livermento last summer, a Livermento, oh, Michael Elise, right side for £13 million to set yourself up for the next two to three years when you'll then sell the pair of them for potentially up to as much as £100 million, that's where they can really find value. So I'm I'm excited to see what happens with Palace moving forward. Um, next up then is my favourite club, Everton. <laughs> uh, let me so start close. by saying it's an F. It's an F. I don't care that they stayed up. It's one of the most embarrassing seasons any club has had. They lost 21 games. Only the bottom two lost more. They had the fourth worst defensive record in the league. I believe, uh, Southampton, Watford, sorry, fifth worst. Southampton, Watford, Leeds and Norwich conceded more, but the fifth worst defensive record in the league. The reason it's so embarrassing, Kev, is how much money they've spent in recent years. Now, I know they didn't spend a lot last summer, but prior to that, they hadn't just overspent. They had broken every single financial fair play that the Premier League has in place. Now, they should be facing a points deduction ahead of next season. They're likely facing a lawsuit from Burnley. It is embarrassing that you could spend that much money. Remember, they've spent, I think their gross spend is top four in the Premier League over the last seven years, or top five in the Premier League. It's more than Liverpool anyway, since Klopp took over. They have flittered away hundreds upon hundreds of million on mediocrity. And the pain won't stop here because they're likely facing a very tight summer again where they have to bring down their losses. They may have to sell uh, Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin. They may not have the money to replace them. They may face a points deduction and they're going to be managed by Frank Lampard again next season. Now, Lampard, to his credit, did keep them up. He took them from 16th when he took over to 16th while he was there. Uh, He successfully brought them into the bottom three for a couple of weeks. He won, I want to say, one, two, three, four, six games. Uh, Six games in the Premier League, which, you know, is what it is. Their home form kept them up. I mean, simple as that. The wins over United and Chelsea at home kept them up. But they're... They were two incredibly embarrassing performances by United and by Chelsea. I mean, the Chelsea thing almost looked like match fixing. 
it was so blatantly <laughs> obvious that the players, the Chelsea players, didn't want to get Frank relegated. Um, but they stayed up. They stayed up by four points. And that's all the Premier League will ever show. All you'll ever look back on is the table. People won't remember the ins and outs. But if, for me, it's an F. I think it's a, a shambolic season. And to be completely honest, I don't think it's going to be the last one. I think going into next season, I have them needing four, sorry, five players. This is on the basis of Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin staying. I have them needing a starting centre-back and two starting midfielders, plus a backup striker and a backup winger. Those may become starting striker and wingers. So that could be five needs. I don't know how much money they're going to have to spend. They've got the worst manager in the Premier League. I don't even think that's debatable. I genuinely don't. I think Lampard is the worst manager in the league. And I just don't see any reason for optimism at the club. There's a couple of good players. I like Michael Enko. I like Patterson. I like um, Ben Godfrey. I think Richarlison and Calvert-Loon are very good. I, I like Damari Gray. I think Gordon's got talent if he can ever learn to stop diving. <laughs> but when you're managed by Lampard, when you don't have much money, when your owners are completely inept, your board have no concept of how to run a football club, I just don't know what there is to be cheerful about for Everton. So it's an F on the season because when you spent that much money and you end up there, that's just what it is. Yeah, I've given them a D minus for the obvious caveat that you didn't uh, <laughs> want to accept, which is they literally didn't get relegated. And their form the last like month or so was terrific and had to be if they were to survive, which obviously they did at Burnley's expense. Um, but yeah, they, they never should have been down there. The fact that they were was just wild. And I think the reason so many people wanted to see them go down was it, it's just been such a long time since a club of that size have gone down. I, I guess maybe Sunderland? I don't know. I don't have a super good example. Um, Blackburn? Newcastle. Oh, Newcastle, Newcastle. sure. sure. Um, but the, the last time a club that big went down was Aston Villa. There. Like Everton are a bigger club than Newcastle. The last time a club bigger than Everton went down was Villa. Now that's only what six years ago, five years ago. Um, but that that's the last one. Yeah, no, I I think that's totally fair. Um, and I I agree with you. I think there's a lot of decent players in this squad, but I think the problem is that a lot of them are still relatively young. And you're messing with their development by having Frank Lampard be their, sorry, uh, yeah, by Frank Lampard being their manager. Um, so that's not ideal. I think the one <laughs> bright spot at the end of the tunnel, well, two, is one, you're safe. You're in the Premier League again. I personally don't think that they'll be meaningfully in the relegation race, although I think they might be in like November and then change manager. Um, but I think the other thing is the stadium which obviously can can cause initial harm, which maybe they aren't high enough uh, in status at present to really absorb. But long-term, the revenue that comes from that will help replace the kind of roughshod spending that they're currently getting from, from the current ownership. Um, so, like, there's, there's a way that I can see a natural growth pattern after this period. Um, but it could, it could be pretty rough in the interim. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if Richarlison tried to leave. I don't know about Calvert-Lewin. I, I mean, the fact that he's English could still see people offer a lot of money for him. But obviously he had a really good season two years ago, but then dealt with injuries all this year. Didn't look particularly great when he did play, although that could have just been like lingering injury stuff. But 
Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. You have a lot of players that are like that haven't improved or have regressed, which just isn't good. As, as you and I both know, relying on Pickford too much is is not great. Incredible shot stopper at times. Like uh, was it Chelsea? The double save was mm. truly incredible. But uh, there are lots of other goals like Sun where he just kicked it next to his foot and he dove over the ball. <laughs> like, uh, just stick your foot out a little bit there, man. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure that's a, that's a strength. I don't think they can keep playing like Michael Keane in defense. Yerry Mina feels like it was a whiff him, him and Davinson Sanchez could have been like the next massive generational defensive pairing for Colombia, and just neither of them really lived up to it. Although I will give credit Davinson Sanchez more consistent this year, but at a much lower ceiling. So maybe, maybe that's where he lands long-term. But Mina, Mina's issue is he can't stay fit. I mean, he played right. 11 times. He started 11 games in the Premier League. The guy just, he's always injured. And also there are times where he's better in the opposing box than in his own. Yes. Like, not, not to compare him against Ramos in terms of ability, but in terms of style of like, he scores goals and then think people think that means he can defend well. And you're like, those are kind of different things. Um, But yeah, I, I like I said, it's a D minus. No, I said D. Somewhere in between there, D and a D. See, I'm not three. giving them credit for staying for up. staying up because they just it never should have been the situation. No, if you spend that much money and like like I said, there's a lot of talent there. Yeah. If you spend that much money, you you shouldn't be in the like it'd be like us giving United bonus points for finishing in the Europa League spot. Yeah, that's true. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And they did spend a lot. I thought Decore was a good signing. I agree with you on on Townsend getting Damari Gray for that cheap after his very brief great stint in Germany. I thought it was great business. Um, yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll see. But but I agree with you. I don't think Frank is the future. I, I think the stadium and this ownership group selling on post stadium is when Everton's actual future will start. So it you know it, there was lots of celebrations when they stayed up. I totally get it from a fan perspective, but it could be a few years before things are like genuinely good at that club and I don't think it'll mostly be with this core of players. Do you know I actually think relegation wouldn't be the worst thing for them. The thought because occurs, yeah. it might force that owner to sell and maybe then you, because we've seen it with Mike Ashley if a team is in the Premier League and the owner is making Premier League money. Why would he sell? Like, there's no, there's no mechanic uh, to, to, or no, no mechanism to force them out. So if they went down, he might look go like, all right, you know what? I'm just going to cut my losses here and run away, and sell the club. And maybe like, because it happened with Aston Villa, where they were in a bad ownership situation, they got relegated, and they got the current owners that they have and they're outstanding owners. And maybe, I mean, we saw the the two boys who are part owners at Palace who tried to be in one of the groups that was trying to buy Chelsea, uh, Josh Harris, who owns the Philadelphia 76ers and his, his business partner. Like they might look at an Everton in the championship and think, okay, distressed asset, clearly going to be undervalued. Stadium has approval, so yes, it'll be expensive, but it will be a massive source of revenue. Let's jump in at this low price point, and we can take our time to build them back up, and we won't have to spend exponentially because the size of Everton, 
the fan base behind Everton will already be bringing money in. There'll still be money coming in. We're not going to have to dig deep into our pockets. Let's get them up and then start building them up slowly, as they've been key with doing at Crystal Palace. But if if they stay in the league, there's no reason for Mashiri to sell. Like, people were trying to get Bill Kenwright to sell for 20 years. And he only sold in the end because he felt old and didn't want to do it anymore. Now, he sits on the board and he still makes decisions, but like he's still there. And Mashiri is not going anywhere. I don't think there's any chance he's going anywhere unless they go down and he just sees it as a sunk cost. Now, the Usmanov thing uh, may change things without without that source of wealth, but it changes things mm. on the negative for Everton as well, not having that that extra money from Usmanov. Yeah, yeah, that could be really damaging. And after like hearing all that initial like it's Abramovich and Usmanov stuff, I really haven't mm. heard much about Usmanov since. No, uh, but he was. It's a different. I suppose a different situation that he wasn't an owner of Everton. He was like uh, a sponsor of Everton, and he sponsored the training ground for way over value. And he was, I think, he was supplying the steel for the stadium and all oh, these different right. types of ways that he was helping them out. Um, but yeah, with him gone, who knows? And the stadium's going to get more expensive now as well, because well, inflation and yeah. not having that source of of you know cheap material. Yeah, no, that's that's all excellent points. Um, obviously, a club that was also deep in that relegation race till the very end there was Leeds, uh, also given them a D. So apparently that's just what I decide for, for clubs that just avoid relegation. Also probably shouldn't have been down there that bad. Oh, uh, just one note, because I just realized it's, it's uh, in my notes here for Leeds that I wanted to mention on Everton. Guess the, in, uh, guess the amount of change in points per game pre-Frank Lampard and post-Frank Lampard? Um, they definitely did better under Frank, largely because of their last six games where they won three of their last six. But Rafa had a really good start to the season mm-hmm. and then a disastrous run. Uh, I'll give you a hint. It aligns with the trend that you brought up about the placements when he joins and where he gets them. Around the same? Almost exactly the same. Because Rafa drew a few games, didn't he? And Frank, I think, only had two draws in his time. Yeah, it was like 0.3 different. (laughs) Do you know, like, this is what Frank does, though. Like, he took over at Derby. I think they'd finished fifth. He spent a fortune. He's one of the main contributors to their current predicament. Uh, They finished fifth and he flopped in the playoffs. He took over Chelsea, who'd finished third, who had gotten into, who'd won the Europa League. And within 18 months, he had them heading towards the bottom half of the division, having spent a fortune. And yet people still want to give him credit. Like even (laughs) for his first season, oh, like he, he kept them in the top four, right? Why is that an an achievement at Chelsea? Only oh, a transfer yeah. embargo. Well, hang on a second. Didn't they buy Kovacic that window on a permanent deal? Didn't they have Christian Pulisic joining the club? Weren't Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham and Fakayo Tomori among the best players they had in his first season? And still the are. The previous manager didn't have any of them. <laughs> 
Yeah. The previous manager didn't have any of the three of them. They because they, they were on loan. So he actually had a better squad than what Sarri had. Sarri, yes, he lost Hazard, but he gained four good players. Agreed. And yet it's meant to be an achievement that he took them backwards, but not as far backwards as people thought. And then the following season collapsed and Jake Humphreys wanted to give him credit for the Champions League win. (laughs) Baffling. I didn't notice any, any tweets from Jake Humphreys congratulating Rafa Benitez on his part in keeping Everton up, though. So there's a weird double standard there. Which was almost, as, as the stats show, almost exactly the same, which is really yeah. fascinating to me. Um, Leeds' situation, obviously, a little bit different. They actually improved their points per game pretty dramatically once Jesse Marsh signed, um, which uh, th- that situation was just a shame. Um, we can get into it a little bit deeper later. But basically, if Bamford and Calvin Phillips don't get injured, Bielsa is still there and they finish like 12th. And it's like not even a, a dramatic story this year. Obviously, there was a lot more going on than just injuries, but you can't lose your best striker and your best defensive midfielder and expect to finish the same way you did the, the, the previous season. I also kind of don't buy Jesse Marsh at the Premier League level. Listen, I'd love to have him as the U.S. men's national team coach because, uh, well, there are many candidates that would be better than Greg Berhalter, but... That's a separate issue for for a separate day. But the the injuries I, were so crucial to to Bielsa being undone. Obviously, the tactics were um, able to be found out a bit. Bielsa was never secretive about it. I don't want to make that sound like they were you know uh, worse or anything because people figured them out. I mean, Pochettino and, and Guardiola have been using them on their own for like a decade now. So Bielsa's tactics not obviously super much, uh, uh, super a secret. But uh, I do think that was part of it. I think the injuries were part of it. The fact that Bielsa always ma- uh, insisted on having a smaller squad was part of it. Because then when you have injuries, it's just so much more damaging um, overall. But yeah, you just basically can't score one goal a match and concede two goal a match. Two goals a match, which is what they were averaging for the majority of the season. Um, but they only get one win in their last five matches, but it's the one that keeps them up. So, I mean, credit to them, I guess, after that overhauling. I think the, those couple of results right after Marsh joined is really what saved them. They, they kind of did their work earlier there. Um, but the, the construction of the squad was just not ever going to lead them to success. They have 15 players over the age of 22. Just 15. Obviously, under that, it gets harder to tell where the blurred line is between the youth setup and, and the senior team because uh, they, they kind of had to shuttle some folks. But that just wasn't good enough. Um, the, the signings in the summer were a little weird. I mean, I'll, I'll fully own up to the fact that I thought Harrison and Firpo were fantastic signings. Harrison obviously played the majority of matches. Firpo, not as much as you would have expected. Um, but then the late move for Dan James, I know they had like an institutional interest in him. When your two best players are already wide players, why are you bringing mm. in a third one? That that one just didn't make sense to me. Why Although, are you spending £25 million on Dan <laughs> James? Yeah. Although when I'm complaining about lack of depth, I mean, I guess you, you did that. But yes, for £25 million, maybe maybe not the, wide, the, the wisest there. Um, then Rafinha is such an interesting case because he's like hilariously their best player. But I'm not really sure he fits their tactical style. I mean, under Bielsa, it fit better. Under Marsh, I'm not really sure what the plan is there. So maybe the idea is move him on to to get the money to fund the Marsh rebuild. But do you trust Marsh enough for a full rebuild? I think that's kind of iffy. The fact that you didn't have a backup striker and that they didn't sign one, I didn't really punish them too hard for in either of the transfer window shows because 
The idea was that that was the point of Rodrigo, who it was always supposed to be, by the way. And then Bamford just happened to develop like perfectly in time with, with Bielsa and their arrival in the Premier League. Although I, I guess he, he was pretty significant in their coming up as well. But then they largely just played Rodrigo as an attacking midfielder for most of the year. I think they played him wide a little bit as well. So uh, having depth and then using them in other positions is interesting. I mean, he's not like a true number nine. He was always better as the second part of a strike duo. I get it. But it's like a backup option. That's not bad. And then they were just like, no, we're just not going to use him like that, um, which is very odd to me. It's 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 so hard to survive, you know, a striker going from 17 goals to two goals. I mean, I, that's very difficult. I'm not saying Rodrigo would have filled that 15, but surely he could have done more. If you've been played there, but you know, that's, that's on me. Uh, and we'll let John McKenzie who's just joined TIFO <laughs> do the talking on that. But, uh, and congrats to him, by the way, I doubt he's listening, but he's great. Check out a podcast about tactics. It's about to die, but all the episodes are about to go free and he's joining TIFO. So you'll be seeing plenty more of him if you follow him over there. But anyway, I, I think back and forward is what they have to bring in. You, you can't do that again. You can't go short of Bamford and then get like four goals from a striker and expect to not be in the exact same situation you were in this year. But yeah, that, that, that's kind of where I'm landing. I don't think Aronson is an is an amazing signing, especially not for the money. It is kind of Dan Jamesy. You're spending loads of money, and is he automatically a starter for you? I would hope so, but I'm not sure it's guaranteed. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know, Dave. Would you sell Rafinha to, to fund the rebuild, and would you trust the full rebuild under Marsh? Um. It's not Marsh I have an issue with. It's Victor Orta. It's the director of football. Sure. I, I think he's just done a really poor job at assembling a squad. Uh, you look at... There is merit in what they've done. They've bought some players for now. They've bought a lot of players for the future. They have future-proofed their squad. You look at the likes of Lewis Bate, who arrived from Chelsea last summer. Uh, Leo Hjeld and Mary Miller. Um, the previous summer, it was even more... Uh, notable what they did with the likes of Somerville and Greenwood and Drama and Allen and Gellhart. And that's all well and good. But then you look at what the squad actually is, and there are many, many red flags in, in terms of the squad they went into this season with. So first things first, goalkeeper, a 20-year-old and a 21-year-old who were obviously a year younger when the season started. So a 19-year-old and a 20-year-old. No veteran presence in your goalkeeping group. That's problematic. Then you look at the defence, and you've got one recognised right-back at the club in Luke Ayling, who's a championship-level player, not a Premier League player, and was clearly out of his depth last season. You've got, you bring in Junior Firpo at left-back, and like you, I applauded the move. I, I still think we'll see more from him next season. I think he'll be better. At centre-back, you've got Robin Cock, injury-prone. Diego Loriente, injury-prone. Liam Cooper, championship at, at best. And Pascal Struik, who's very young. And then it's a bunch of kids. So when I look at your best team in the Premier League, I can't be looking at a best, a best 11 with championship-level players in your best 11. If you've got players missing and the guys coming in to replace them are championship level, that's different. But when they're in your best 11, as uh, Luke Ayling is, then it's it's a big problem for me. In midfield, Stuart Dallas plays a lot, championship level. Adam Forshaw plays, championship level. I think Matthias Glish is 
borderline Premier League level, but even that's questionable. But he's Premier League level because he can play like eight positions. Yeah, and, and that's it. That's where his strength comes from is his, his versatility. But I look at your midfield and I've got Calvin Phillips and then what? I've got a bunch of championship players and a bunch of kids and no one else. I've got no starting caliber partner for Calvin Phillips and nobody to replace him if he's out for, as he was, three months. Then in the line behind the striker, you've got Rafinha, you've got Harrison. I like both of those. You get Dan James as depth. You pay too much for him, but he's there and it's fine. And you've got Rodrigo, and he's a talented player, but obviously not a consistent player. And then up front, you've got Bamford, and you've got kids. You've got Joe Gellhart, Sam Greenwood, and Tyler Roberts, who's more of a wide player than a nine. So I see a failure at right back, a failure in midfield and no depth behind your striker and no experienced goalkeeper. And that's before a ball is kicked, before anybody gets injured, before we know what happens with anything. So going into the season, there were issues. And then obviously Bamford misses most of the season. There's injuries at centre back relentlessly. Calvin Phillips misses three months. And, and the players you're bringing in to replace these guys are just aren't good enough. They're not good enough to rely on. You've got too many kids. At one point, they had a 15-year-old on the bench this season. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was saying. It was I'm like, sorry. It's hard to tell who are the academy players and who are the like senior players, just if you look at their squads and their benches. You, just, you can't do that in the Premier League. You can't have a 15-year-old. If he's there by choice, because you've got, you know, a strong bench and you, you want to give him a match day experience to start, you know, for his development and whatever else. Great. But if he's there by necessity, I remember looking at their bench one time, Kev, in the middle of the season. And there wasn't a single player over the age of 22. Yep. Not one player. They only have 15 total. So if 11 of them are on the pitch and you have a Do few you know, injuries. That's that's a massive failure by the director of football. Going into this season, I have them needing seven players. Four of them are starters. Starting right back, starting centre-back to partner um, Diego Loriente, a starting central midfielder to partner Calvin Phillips, a starting attacking midfielder. I'm working on the basis that Rafinha and Harrison stay. So I was thinking Rafinha one side, starting 10, Harrison the other side. And then a backup striker, a backup left back, and a veteran third-choice goalkeeper. If I was them, I would be making a big push to get Ben Foster because he's not a great goalkeeper, but at least he knows what it is to play in this division. And he can be a mentor and a part-time coach to these two young keepers, Melian and Klaassen, who are very talented, but they're children. So... I think it's a big, big summer needed. They've brought in Aronson. I'm a bit higher on him than you are, but I still think, you know, I don't know he's an every game caliber starter, but it is a position in which, you know, you could play Rodrigo. Harrison could play there and James could play left wing. So you've got players that can play that role as well if needed. Um, They may have the right back situation solved with Rasmus Christensen coming from RB Salzburg. So, it may well be that they are going to properly address the squad this summer and get the players needed. But why didn't you do that for Marcelo Bielsa, the, the guy who brought you into the division? It was basically why did you a always leave him short? 
Why did you leave him short? I just don't understand. Why are you willing to go the extra yard for Jesse Marsh and you weren't for Bielsa? That, to me, is is a, a big failure. On the season, look, as I said earlier, second season syndrome is a real thing. We saw what happened to Sheffield United. It happened to Leeds this season. They managed to survive. I'll give them a D plus, um, a rare D plus. It's not a good thing, but it, <laughs> the plus gives it a bit of bonus. But look, they stayed up and that's all that really matters for them. When you're trying to establish yourself in the division, staying in the division is all that really matters. Sure. Right. Last one for this part, which has gone very long, is Leicester City. Um, it's a very disappointing season, in my view. For the previous two seasons, they finished fifth. They really should have finished in the top four, but found exciting ways to bottle it both times. This season, they finished 19 points behind Spurs in fourth place. And if it wasn't for a late little run of form, uh, they would have the finished. The second got back. Yes, exactly. They would have finished outside of the top eight. They were 14th with four games left. 14th. They did finish eighth, but for me, all that is is proof the table lies because nobody will be able to convince me that they had a better season than Brighton or Wolves, and yet they finished above both of them. In particular, Wolves. Wolves had a much better season than Leicester, and Wolves were better than Leicester this season. So I, I do think you can get examples of where the table lies. I think West Ham over United, or United over West Ham is another one. But... um. Look, they, they, they dealt with a lot of injuries. Um, they dealt with some bad business last summer in the signings of Vestergaard and Bertrand, uh, Ryan Bertrand, neither of whom did well. The young players they bought in, Sumari and Daka, were inconsistent and Rodgers didn't seem to trust them. So basically, out of last summer's transfer window, they didn't get anything in the league, which is, is a big failing on Brendan Rodgers' part. Um, they've got... They've got a very good squad, a very, very good squad. Like, I genuinely don't think there's many clubs in the league in a better situation than Leicester from a talent point of view. Like, if you look at a starting 11 of Schmeichel, Pereira, Fafana, Johnny Evans, James Justin, Ndidi, Tielemans and Dewsbury Hall, Harvey Barnes, Jamie Vardy and James Madison. That's a really good starting 11. And there's some good depth there. And the only things you really need to do, you need to replace Johnny Evans because he is past his years now and he's always injured. So you've got to get a starting centre back. You're going to have to replace Telemans because he's going to leave. So you've got to do that. And then you're sort of looking at it and going, right, what else do we need to do here? We've got to find a replacement for Kasper Schmeichel, like a, a future starting goalkeeper and a future starting number nine. But maybe that's Pats and Daka. So going into this summer, I think they only need to do three things. Starting centre-back, replace Thielemans and get yourself your future starting goalkeeper. They could potentially get their starting centre-back in that Thielemans deal by trying to convince Arsenal to give them Saliba. I don't think they'd need to spend mega money to get um, to get that central midfielder. I think they've got a good enough scouting network to find someone who could be very good in that role. 
And then a future starting goalkeeper, you'll get that for somewhere in the 10 to 15 million pound range. I don't think it's a massive summer for Leicester in terms of the recruitment. But I think the biggest decision is, are you really going to stick with Brendan Rodgers? Because it does really seem to me like his his message has worn thin with his players. The plus side is no European football next season. So all out focus on the league. And maybe you jump your way back up into those European spots. But I think he's the biggest question mark there. On the season, I've given them a C-. Because I think it is a very disappointing season for them with that talent to finish where they did. And more importantly, to have the season that they did up until the last four games. It's a C- for me. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what I had. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, C minus for me as well. You just expected them to do better, and you're right that if you just look at the league position, it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, eight seems perfectly reasonable. West Ham were good last year. Obviously, United you didn't expect to tumble that far. Maybe it's a surprise that the Tottenham and Arsenal had had as good seasons as they did. But yeah, you you probably take you probably take eight. The way it happened though, you you probably can't be happy with it all. And yeah, I agree with you. I, Jim mentioned coming into the season that if Rodgers had like six bad results, the ownership would probably be looking to replace him. Obviously didn't happen. Um, But yeah, you can't imagine he's on like super firm footing. And it's just kind of a weird situation because last offseason, I thought they were like entering this period where with the squad they have, and you've mentioned a lot of them, they were like capable of launching themselves into that like top six because obviously Tottenham and Arsenal were both really struggling. Um, And that just feels gone now to me yeah so then the question is like do you keep this core together and know that like at the absolute best you finish like fifth or sixth but that most likely you're going to finish somewhere between seventh and tenth or do you start to look for it look look i know it's a lot of young players so you could just expect that natural development maybe you bring in a, a manager that that helps players improve a bit more on the training pitch but like do you start do you start moving on from this core? Do you sell Tielemans? You probably can't sell Madison because of the injuries, but he, he was pretty good when he was playing this year. Yeah. Um, but who, who's going to buy him is the issue. Exactly. Like, for the fee they'll want, which is probably north of 50 million. Because he's English. Yeah. Because he's English. There's only a handful. And he did have a good season. I think he had he seven he goals and 11 assists. There's only a handful of clubs that can p- pay that. Now, City don't need him. Liverpool, maybe. You could see him playing as a right-sided eight who can also play as a ten if they change the shape. Mm. But it's unlikely. If Spurs miss uh, Ericsson, maybe. But we're only willing to change the formation for somebody that already knows the system under Conte. Would we really change to having a number ten over well, Kulisevsky for him? If you change the him? system, yeah. you're, not gonna, you're, you're changing from a 3-4-3 a three, three to a 3-5-2. Right. Because that's, that's the Conte way. He's playing a back three. He's playing wing-backs. He either goes three in midfield and two up front, or two in midfield and three up front. So if you bring in a Madison, you're losing Kulisevsky. But is that that much of an upgrade, if one at all? Is is it an upgrade at all? Right. Because I thought at times last season, Kulisevsky put that Spurs team on his back and won you games single-handedly. He did. He had, what, like five goals and nine assists in 14 matches? Just unreal Super impressive. Super impressive. He is... Juventus have made a massive mistake. A massive mistake. Uh, he is going to be outstanding for Spurs. Arsenal don't need him because they bought Odegaard. United, also fantastic. Ha- they have Bruno. Now, you could buy him and play him left wing with Bruno, but it's a bit of an awkward fit. And 
you know, it's that's Gloria a Gloria Sancho wing. and Rashford, who you insist yeah. on playing on the wings. And, and Martial can play on the wing. So you don't need that left winger. It's, if you're buying a winger, it's probably a right winger at United. West Ham couldn't afford him and don't need a player in that role. And below that, unless Newcastle decide that they want him, there's no one else that has that kind of money. So it may well be like I do agree. I think there's there's certain things they could do. There's certain players that are probably that have been important parts of the last three years for them that probably need to be moved on. I would move on Ricardo Pereira. I would move James Justin back to right back and buy a mm-hmm. new left back. I think you can get because what I would what I what I would like to see them do is start to build their defence. It's unacceptable to me to concede 59 goals in the Premier League. Mm. When you've got a James Justin and a Wesley Fofana, you've got half of what could be a great defence. You can address those other two positions, potentially Saliba in the Telemans deal, and get that left back in. Kasper Schmeichel is an experienced enough goalkeeper and a vocal organiser who, even with a younger defence, will be able to talk them through games. You keep Johnny Evans around for depth because he's a good leader and a veteran presence. You know, you've got decent enough fullback depth as well uh, in Castanier and Luke Thomas. So, you know, a couple of moves in the margins there. Maybe an attack. I mean, maybe you look to move Ndidi on and get a big fee and try, but with he's the injuries limited. he's had. He is, but as a shielding, ball-winning midfielder, he is one of the best in the league. And he's he is what United have been crying out for. Like he would make a huge difference then. But with the injuries he's had the last two seasons, his value's probably down. So maybe you're better off hanging on to him. Other than that, you are starting to work around the margins. I think new manager, new voice, and maybe a more defensive orientated approach, where at least you you might not score as many goals as you have. And they scored 62 goals this season, which is more than Arsenal, more than United, more than West Ham. But maybe you concede 39 instead of 59 and you'll win a lot more games. Goals win games. Defence wins championships. Mm. And while Leicester aren't going to win the league. If they had a really, really strong defence with that attacking talent of Barnes and Madison, Ianacho, Daka, Vardy... Uh, Adamola Luckman, if they keep him, Jewsbury Hall coming from midfield. If they had a really strong defence with that much attacking talent, like I, I think they're a, a team that will be Europa League most seasons. If you gave Antonio Conte that team this season, last season, the season before, they're not missing top four. Like, there's so much talent in that team. He would find a way to make it work. This is a guy who has made his life improving players who otherwise you would have written off. I mean, he made Eric Dyer and Ben Davies look like more than capable defenders this season. He He's made Matt Doherty, who was a laughing stock at your club in September and October, <laughs> into a player that you were devastated when he got hurt. Yep. Like Spurs fans were devastated. Like Ryan Sessegnon looked like he might be heading for the scrap heap. By the end of this season... You guys wanted Cessna on the team over Regulon. So, you know, a guy like him who can improve players has a real fundamental way of playing. You look at Leicester 
week to week to week, it's a different shape. It's a different way of playing. Rodgers is just throwing shit against the wall and hoping for the best. It's a very disappointing season. And if I was Leicester, and the, and the, the, the thing is, what I think is going to happen here is they'll keep him. And if he starts the season badly, they'll bin him off. And what that does, it makes next season almost a wasted season for them. Because unlike you guys, they can't they can't attract a Conte. So they're going to be scrambling around trying to find someone. It's very hard to get Premier League managers, because I know Graham Potter is one they do like, but it'll be hard to get him out of Brighton in October or November. You might have to wait till the following season, which means six months of a caretaker. And then you're losing a full season. And, and then when the likes of Madison and Barnes and and Didi and Fafana don't have European football for the season, they're going to look around and go, hang on. Like, what are we doing here? Let, let, let's get out of here. Let's go. Let's agent get, get me a move transfer request. Yada, yada, yada. This is, it's a pivotal summer for Leicester in terms of sorting out that managerial thing. Cause I think Roger's time is, is done at Leicester. Yeah, I agree. And I think the, the reason why we're talking about like, potentially selling some of those key players is like what do do you want to invest all of this under Rogers or do you want to start moving on to the next chapter, which would include the manager? But yeah, tough call for me, but yeah, I, I gave them a C minus for the season. It would have been worse if it wasn't for the Fofana injury because that, that was obviously a huge blow to their year. It was, that was massive. That really threw them out of their stride. But you know, when you look at certain individuals in that team, like in Kagler Sionchu is the most obvious one here. What happened? He was brilliant in the first season under Rodgers. When Harry Maguire was sold and he came in, he was brilliant. Last season, he was iffy. And this season, he was flat out garbage. He has regressed massively. Now, Brendan does make every defender he works with worse. Just go and look at the ones that played from at Liverpool. But that is, like, when he when he was having that run of form in that 1920 season he was been linked with everybody spurs were in for him arsenal wanted him it was 50 million could leicester get 60 and now well he's only got a year left in his deal anyway so his value would be down but you'd be lucky to get 15 million for him let alone 50 yeah yeah i agree i, I don't think you'd get any anywhere near there and and your point about the contract situation is like super horrible timing because in theory you'd want him kind of like you mentioned with these earlier i think this year you you keep him he has way more valuable to, to you th than he has value outside of your building this year but mm. if he has a great season and doesn't sign an extension that he's just walking for free and he makes all that profit instead of you yeah, it's it's going to be they, a really tough call for them they've got big decisions coming up on contracts as well so casper schmeichel soyuncu bertrand Johnny Evans, Yuri Tielemans, Hamza Chowdhury, Nampalis Mendy, Jamie Vardy and Iosi Perez are all at a contract next summer. That's a lot of your squad. Now, you don't That's want to keep wild. all of them, but it's it's not a good situation to have that many players coming up into the last 12 months of their contract. That's really poor management. And that's not something you lay entirely at Roger's feet because there's people above him that need to be working on these things as well. But that's a lot of experience to potentially lose in one summer. And it's a lot of quality as well in the form of like Telemans, Vardy uh, and Kasper Schmeichel. So 
Yeah, big, big decisions coming at Leicester. Not not much needed. If they want to just continue to run it forward with this group, not much needed to take them to a strong level. Centre-back, centre-midfield, that's fine. Sort those. But in terms of beyond that, yeah, there's a, there's a lot, to, lot to decide. We will leave it here for part one. We will be back later in the week with part two, which will be on the EPL roundtable um, feed. You can find that on any podcast platform just by searching EPL Roundtable and from there we will go with the next group of clubs starting with Liverpool and working our way through to Wolves there'll be a few in there I think that'll be quite quick to get through I don't think we'll want to spend much time on on Norwich or on Watford for example but um yeah we will see you later in the week thank you all for listening bye-bye Podcast Network.